are always recruiting new warrior scholars and caterers to join our merry band of misfits. Whether you're new to Gladden, a returning veteran, or just a little curious about exploring this world, Professor Narnian is introducing in this series. We welcome you, and most of all, we welcome him. Over to you, my good lore master. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, welcome everybody back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, glad to be back here on the Gladden server in game here tonight, uh, and uh, excited to get back to uh, the house of Tom Bombadil, where we have been for a few weeks, and are going to spend a few more weeks here moving forward. We have dreams to discuss. You remember we spent a whole class talking about one dream uh, a while back, so uh, we've got three of them to talk about today. So that's uh, that's uh, it's a pretty tall challenge, but we'll see what we can do. Um, in, uh, in the meantime, I also have some announcements, a bunch of announcements. Uh, today is a big announcement day because, uh, as I have mentioned in the past, it is, uh, it, this week is the first full week of our annual fundraising campaign for Signum University. Um, first, I wanted to mention, before I forget, uh, just a reminder of, of the, uh, the announcement I've made the last couple weeks. Uh, for those of you who are in the general Midwest region, don't forget to look up the uh, Tolkien Conference we're going to be having, our uh, Midwest uh, regional moot there that's going to be going on on the weekend of Columbus Day, so uh, Saturday, October 7th in Waterloo, Iowa, uh, if you can come in and join us us for a, a, a very low-cost, high-fun uh, day of, uh, of, of scholarly geekiness. So that'll be really great. It would be great to have you there. Um, just a reminder uh, of that. And as I say, it is officially the time of our fundraising campaign. Uh, as you know, of course, you know this, uh, this class is totally free to everybody, not only, of course, to attend, but uh, to, to, uh, to watch on YouTube, to download the, the videos and, and audio you know, we like to make uh, our stuff as widely available as we possibly can. And during the one season a year, we uh, remind everyone that we rely, of course, upon the generosity of our listeners and uh, and attendees to help to support us and to to make that happen. Um, so I, I we're gonna I'm gonna be talking a little bit more. We have the the fundraiser goes on for the next three weeks, our fundraising campaign, and I'll be talking a little bit more about it as we move forward. I wanted to just kind of tell you a little bit. To Today about the special uh, prizes that we want to give away to sort of you know we love to celebrate the people who uh, who who give to help support and uh, and make it possible. I also just wanted to tell you a little bit about what we're uh, what we're going to be doing because we're doing that a little bit differently uh, this year. So. Um, so let me let me just tell you a little bit about how that's going to go. So first off, uh, just again a general reminder: if you've been enjoying this, you know, this session, and you're looking forward to the next, you know, ten to fifteen years of going through the Lord of the Rings with me, um, please do consider donating. You know, any uh, uh, amount, small amounts, or big amounts, or uh, you know, monthly amounts, or whatever. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really great. Just go to signumuniversity.org/slash. Fund is the is the is the our, our main fundraiser page or slash donate if you just want to go straight to the donation form. Um, the as but let me tell you about the prizes. So he, here's what we're gonna do. In years past, in our fundraising campaign, we've done a lot of like fun sort of door prizes and drawings and things during our campaign, which I really love doing. But one thing that I was kind of realizing, I was kind of reflecting on uh, this past 
you know, this this past you know this, this past month as we've been preparing for the fundraising campaign, is that. We've been showing a sort of a, a, a pretty strong bias, almost a complete bias, really, towards the people who are able to attend our sessions live, which is great. We love the people who can attend live, and, and I love interacting with you guys and, and everything. But, of course, I know that there are many, many people, um, really quite a few more people, who are not able to attend live and who therefore miss out on all the fun, like, drawings and door prizes and giveaway action that we do uh, in our fundraising campaigns every year. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this year. Um, we're going to have, uh, we're going to give away several really, uh, really fun prizes and I'll, I'll be talking a little bit more about this next week as well, but just to kind of introduce the general concept here this week, um, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to be giving away five, uh, five books. So let me, um, let me show you. And, and the theme of the books is from our Mythgard Academy classes. So the, the Mythgard Academy are these, you know, the in-depth discussions that we do, those, those take place on Wednesday nights. And uh, just to show you, here's the name of our class tonight, Perchance to Dream. Uh, perchance we'll get to talking about the dreams tonight. Um, but, uh, okay, so let me... This is the list of all of the books that we have talked about in the, uh, in the Mythgard Academy uh, series since we began four years ago. And uh, what, so what, what we're going to give away is we're going to give away your choice. We'll give you a, you know, for, so we're, we're going to draw five people. So uh, anyone who donates uh, to help support Signum University between now and the end of our fundraising campaign, uh, we're, well, really, between now and two weeks from uh, from tonight, our third class, the last class during the campaign, um, and then we'll, we'll do the drawings in, in that class uh, two weeks from now. Anyway, so anytime over the next two weeks, uh, if you make a donation and then send an email to donate at signumu.org, uh, donate at signumu.org, send an email and mention in the title, mention Exploring the Lord of the Rings in your subject line uh, of the email, and we will enter you in the drawing for one of our prizes. Now, it's not just that we're going to give you a book, which is cool, like who doesn't like free books, but uh, the prize is a little bit more than that. So in addition to just getting a book, I will also make for you uh, a custom uh, book plate to put in your book, um, where I'll, you know, which I'll customize for you and, and uh, you know, sort of say if, you know, a little like introductory stuff uh, to the book, some of my reflections on it and stuff that I was most interested in in our discussions when we talked about it in the Mythgard Academy. I just absolutely loved digging into all of these books. Um, the one other thing I wanted to throw out there, if you wanted instead to get a copy of my book, Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, I'd be happy to give you that instead, and again give you a uh, give you a, a signed copy and a, and a, a little book plate to go in that as well. Uh, so that so that's gonna, so we're going to give out five of those. So we're going to do five drawings. You'll have your choice of what book you want. Um, all, again, all you have to do is make a donation of any size to Signum University between now and the class two weeks from now, and then send an email to donate at signumu.org and uh, mention the Exploring the Lord of the Rings uh, in your subject line, and you'll be entered in that drawing, okay? So that's, and so like I said, it's not just for people who are here live. Of course, everyone who is here live is invited to participate, but all of you who are watching or listening to this after the fact, uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, sorry that you missed uh, uh, the drawings and stuff. Well, this year you didn't miss the drawings and stuff. You can still, uh, you can still enter again. All you have to, any time in the next two weeks, you can enter uh, that drawing. So, um, anyway, so that's how it's uh, that's how it's going to work. That's what's going to happen uh, uh, this year. How the how the drawings are, are going to work. As I say, I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, about that. Um, 
next time. Oakwig asks, can I get a signed audiobook? Well, that's a little harder, but yeah, yeah, Oakwig, we can do that. If you want an audio book, if you want an audio version, we'll get you an audio. If the audio version exists, we'll get you the audio version and I'll give you a little audio book plate. I'll give you a little audio introduction. That'll be totally fine. I can do we can do that. Um, I I can't promise to 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 uh, to to give you an audio autograph. Not quite sure how to do that. Uh, But, uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. Um, Okay, Um, so. so th- anyway, so just wanted to I just wanted to let you know about the other thing I wanted to ask, um, especially since exploring the Lord of the Rings is new this year, uh, and I would love to be able to kind of, uh, you know, part of what what I'd love to do during the fundraising campaign. One of the sort of purposes of the fundraising campaign is it's a great opportunity once a year for us to just kind of raise awareness about what's going on at Signum University and all the kinds of things that we're doing um, in all of our uh, of our programming. Um, and, so, and I think there are a lot of people who either don't know or don't really understand or like appreciate what this class is about. You have to admit this is a little bit odd, right, in a lot of different ways. You know, this uh, whole exploring the Lord of the Rings book discussion slash in-game uh, 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 field trip concept is, is a little bit out there even for me. So um, a lot of people, I think, don't fully understand what it's about. And I would, I would be really interested if, you, if you've been enjoying our time together, you know, as we've been uh, going through the Fellowship of the Ring here so far, if you wanted to just write a little, like, one-paragraph you know, uh, sort of testimonial and send it to me by email, you could post it in the, uh, uh, in the discussion forum. Uh, that'd be really great. I would love to to kind of collect a few of those. That would be a lot of fun. So uh, anyway, uh, just wanted to uh, just wanted to give you uh, just to kind of invite you to to contribute those if you would uh, uh, if you would if you would like to participate that way. All right. So that's uh, that's enough announcements for today. Uh, let's get to, well, okay, 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 one more. One more announcement, and that is another special event connected with the campaign. This weekend, on Saturday, starting at 4 p.m., p.m. I'm going to be doing a marathon, um, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm going to be doing a marathon Lotro stream, so I'm going to take my my, my senior character, uh, Wigand, who is still not very far along. He's, what, like 87, level 87 now, as of last night. Um, so, uh, I'd, but he's getting there. Uh, he's going to get to Helm's Deep. That's his, that's, that's, that's good. He, so he's going to get to, and, and I've never done epic battles before. I've visited Helm's Deep. So, I, I mean, I've seen the location, uh, but I've never, you know, I got there on the bingo bag when we did uh, the bingo boffin, not bingo baggins, the bingo boffin quest line and stuff. So I've seen it, um, but I've never seen the battle. And I'm really in, I can't wait to see um, how the, the whole battle sequence is handled within the epic quest line and to, to do the, uh, uh, to do the epic battle sequences, which again I've never done any epic battling at all in Lotro, so um, so that's what I'm going to do on Saturday. So this coming Saturday, September 30th, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the Signum U Twitch channel, I'm going to do a marathon, probably at least eight hours or so. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll stream to midnight and possibly beyond, uh, doing uh, doing the Battle of Helm's Deep. I hope to get through the entire uh, sequence there, um, and and. Lily Rose, I'm going to be doing that on Landerval, which is my home server. That's where all my all my uh, my leveled up alts are. So it should be really fun. So I hope you'll be able to join me there, and we'll have some special giveaways and and uh, and and prizes and things and drawings and stuff to, that are special just to that event, uh, as we've often done before. So 
Uh, so that's going to be really cool. So I wanted to invite you to that as well. So, okay, now I'm done with announcements and let's move on and uh, talk about the book. But before we get to the text of, of The Fellowship of the Ring itself, we need to follow up. First, there are a couple questions that I wanted to address, but I uh, I wanted to follow up uh, because the invitation, or was it a, really a command? It was kind of a little more of a command. Uh, I said it needed to happen. I, I, I tasked you guys uh, with a creative project, and you guys rose to the occasion. Uh, that is, remember the last slide we were making jokes about uh, Goodnight Moon and Tom Bombadil? You know how that passage where they're saying goodnight reminded me of Goodnight Moon, and I made the joke in my subtitle. And... Um, uh, and and I you know and we, and we were kind of joking about how there really needs to be a Tom Bombadil version uh, of Goodnight Moon. Well, we got two cool versions of Goodnight Moon, uh, the Tom Bombadil version uh, that were both posted to our uh, discussion forums. I can't read them both, um, but um, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to I wanted to read at least one of them. So I kind of flipped up and and uh, uh, and chose one. Uh, but I, I I urge you to go to. Uh, the discussion board and read them both. Uh, so let's begin with a little story here. Good Night Bombadil by Rinruz and Crooked Heart. Thanks for that collaboration. I saw you guys saying you're going to do that. I'm glad you came through. All right. In the great green room, there was a lily bloom and a red faced buffoon and a picture of. The cow jumping over the moon. And there were two hobbit pears sitting on chairs, and two little ponies, and a pair of conies, and a little low house, and a green clad spouse, and a skip, and a sweep, and a bound, and a leap, and a quiet old willow who was whispering sleep. Good night, room. Good night, bloom. Good night, cow, jumping over the moon. Good night, white, and the red-faced buffoon. Good night, pears. Good night, chairs. Good night, ponies, and good night, conies. Good night, Tom, and good night, calm. Good night, low house, and good night, spouse. Good night, skip, and good night, sweep. Good night, goldberry. Good night, leap. And good night to the old willow whispering sleep. Good night, river. Good night, hare. Good night, lilies everywhere. All right, very good. Now, I agree, Lady Shmebiwak, this was missing artwork, right? And I felt that keenly as I was, you know, making up the slides. Um, I was trying that I'd, I'd. I spaced them on the slides based upon the spacing of what I remember reading to my kids when we were reading that book fairly regularly. Uh, but anyway, very good. That was uh, that was uh, that was very well done. I, I really liked both of them. But uh, as I said, anyway, so very good. Thank you, thank you for uh, making uh, that creative project a reality. <laughs> See all the things we're accomplishing here. This is really this is really awesome. Okay. Two questions before we get back to um, 
by the way, that casting old man Willow in the in the role of the old woman whispering hush was brilliant. Like, was that was that was absolutely inspired. Um, and I like, of course, although the cow jumping over the moon is not, of course, present anywhere in Tom Bombadil's house. The fact that, of course, the original Good Mo- Goodnight Moon includes a picture of a cow jumping over a moon, and like the fact that that's an obviously relevant Tolkienian reference, right? Uh, keeping it in totally defensible under those circumstances. Um, <laughs> all right, cool. Very good. Okay. So, um, question number one, uh, this is Mike who said, I was thinking more about Tom's chance line when by chance, if chance you call it just this morning, I stumbled over a similar reference, listening to the audiobook. I dug out my paper copy and checked it out. Appendix a part three, Doran's folk, Gandalf speaking to Frodo and Gimli and Minas Tirith because I met Thorin Oakenshield one evening on the edge of spring in Bree. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle-earth. And, and Mike, this is certainly one of the very famous examples, all right? I mean, if, if there are, like, f- you know, um, four places in the text that I always think of, you know, um, as examples of the chance of chance you call it thing, right? One is Tom Bombadil's line. One is the, the Gilder and Glorian passage we've already looked at. One is when this comes up uh, in the Council of Elrond with Elrond. And the fourth one is this one. Uh, in the appendix. But, Mike, I loved this observation. Uh, And he says, yes, that's chance meeting with a hyphen. Strange and deliberate, but it's a similar sort of construction to Tom's passage. They say it in Middle-earth. Gandalf doesn't explicitly say that others wouldn't consider it chance, or that it definitely wasn't chance, but he sort of hints at it the same way Tom does. Mike, I loved that observation. And, uh, And, Mike, I've missed that. Uh, for, because I always listen to the audiobook. Uh, and so I'm really glad you looked it up in the paper copy. Um, I think now I'm thinking Robert Inglis misreads that line, right? Um, you know, he just, when he reads it, he just says a chance meeting, as we say in Middle Earth, right? But that's not what it is. It's not a chance meeting, as if that were just an adjective and a noun. It's a chance meeting, right? The fact that that is hyphenated um, that really, Mike, that kind of blew my mind. I hadn't noticed that in forever because it's been a long time since I've looked at the print version. Um, this is a really cool example of that kind of hyphenation phenomenon that we've been talking about, right? That chance meeting, there is no way that that deserves to be hyphenated, right? That's just not a hyphenated phrase under any circumstances. You would think it's in just an adjective and a noun, Right. But Tolkien hyphenates it, and that is exactly the kind of thing which, uh, you know, and I've credited uh, Sparrow Alden for this, uh, uh, for this observation in her, uh, in her Hobbit thesis um, at Signum, that, you know, when Tolkien does that, her argument is that he is presenting, um, you know, like a canning, basically something which is, there's a word for that in the original Middle-earth language, right? But we don't, in modern English, have a word that means that. Um, exactly, Mary, like Night Shadows in Tom's song when we were talking about uh, when we were talking about that then. Exactly. So the idea that there's a special noun, right? The, the implication that there's a special noun night meeting, or chance meeting, sorry, not night meeting, chance meeting, right? Um, so there are meetings, and then there are chance meetings, Right. And I love that. I think that's really, really neat. And I had never noticed that before. So really, really glad that you brought that up. And I totally agree, um, Mike, that you can see the same kind of the same kind of a very similar response to 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 Bombadil. Right. Um, Gildor, when he talks about it, states much more clearly there is more than there is more than chance. 
right? But, you know, th- like there's a purpose, but he doesn't know what the purpose is. Um, both Gandalf and Bombadil, Mike, as you're pointing out, acknowledge the fact that this is one of those things that is referred to commonly in Middle-earth as chance, um, and with the heavy implication that it isn't really, but that's how people think of it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. Um, okay. Um, second one. Then we'll get back to our, then, then we'll finally get to our dreams. And you'll notice, by the way, I'm already on slide 21, right? Personal record, I cheated a little bit with the Goodnight Moon book, which was 18 slides, right? So, but I was like, hey, you know, I was I was tempted before class started to, like, ask you guys to place bets, how you know, how far through my slides I would get, you know, before I, but, you know, that would be cheating. Anyway, okay. Um, Brandon Lovesey uh, wants to return briefly to an element of this uh, passage we, we didn't talk about much, which I'm glad he is. Uh, Fair lady, said Frodo again after a while, tell me if my asking does not seem foolish, who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry. Frodo basically prefaces his question to Goldberry with, if this is a stupid question, don't feel you have to answer it. And she goes on ahead and answers it. She doesn't upbraid him or suggest that his, fool- that his question was foolish. Tom is strange, especially to the hobbits. It is only natural for them to have questions. My question is, what can we do with this? Goldberry acknowledges that it's a valid question to ask who is Tom Bombadil, and clearly feels that her answer is sufficient. He is. Is there anything else we need to know? Um, great. I, I think that... Um, uh, I, I, I'm really... Because we did kind of skim over that phrase, if my asking does not seem foolish. And I love the opportunity to pause for a second and think about the implications of that, what that tells us about Frodo's own state of mind as he's asking the question, right? Um, If my asking does not seem foolish, is clearly an acknowledgement that there's a decent chance that it's going to look, that it's going to sound foolish, right? Um, That uh, at least it could be mistaken as a foolish question, or possibly even that he's actively, like, trepidatious that it is, in fact, uh, a foolish question. Um, So... Um, I mean, I think that's the first thing that we noticed, his own kind of diffidence about the question. So why is he diffident, exactly? Um, here's my theory about that. I think, and, and again, anyway, I talked about this a little bit, but just to kind of review and clarify, when he is, when Frodo is asking the question, who is Tom Bombadil? Remember, Fro- Tolkien in his letter says that um, when Frodo says, who is Tom Bombadil?, He's like probably a little bit. What he really means is, what is Tom Bombadil? But that's not what he asks, right? And that it's easy for Frodo and for us as readers to confuse those two questions. So yeah, um, I think that that does um, that. On the one hand, that is what he's asking. He's asking, what is Tom Bombadil? But I think there's another sense in which who is an appropriate question. Um, the one example that I gave that kind of popped into my head back then was the, the King Saul and David thing, right? When he does this thing and he's like, who is he? No, no, no. I know his name. I know where he comes from. But like, who is he? Like, what is significant about him? Of course, we have another obvious parallel uh, sort of nearby. We haven't encountered it yet, but it's going to happen, right? Think about Aragorn. Frodo knows Strider, right? He knows him. He sees him. He travels with him and everything, right? Remember the reaction that Frodo has when Gandalf tells him his lineage, right? When he learns in that conversation that he has 
from bed, right? When, you know, when he wakes up in Rivendell and Gandalf is sitting at his bedside and they have that first conversation. And in that conversation is when Gandalf reveals that he is, you know, an heir of the old kings. And remember Frodo's reaction. Frodo's like, oh, I had no idea. I thought he was only a ranger, right? That is, he knew who Aragorn was, right? You know, he knew who Strider was. They'd met him, right? Again, it's... But he didn't know, like, who he was, right? He's somebody. And when Frodo is told he is the heir of Isildur, it's like, oh, whoa, so that's, that's who he is, right? And I think that that's what... Um, I think that that's what Frodo is asking here, essentially. Like, essentially, he can tell that Tom Bombadil is kind of a big deal, right? Um, he's clearly impressed by the whole rescuing from Old Man Willow, right? This is the guy who can just kind of come skipping by, um, sing a couple verses to Old Man Willow, and Old Man Willow will, will you know, barf up his friends. Like, that's a big deal. Even just a small thing, right? Like Frodo running towards him, calling out help, and all Bombadil does is lift up his hand and say, whoa, there, right? And Frodo immediately freezes, right? He has felt, like, in his own person, felt the power of Tom Bombadil to command, right? He has come under the mastery of Tom Bombadil, in a sense, right? So Frodo perceives that he's a big deal. And so he asks, who is he? Right? Like, who is he really? Like, what's his, what's his background? He, he's a big deal, right? So, so who is he? So, like, does that question mean what is he? Yeah, it does mean what is he, right? Like, I can tell he's a big deal. Like, what, what kind of a big deal? Like, what are, what's his resume? What are his credentials, right? How does this work? Um, and so Goldberry's answer does very pointedly, well, not pointedly, it's not quite right, but she doesn't answer that question, right? She gives him almost nothing to go on. But notice, I think it's pretty clear that she understands what he means, what he's asking, right? She says he is. And she acknowledges, in a sense, I think, Brandon, that that's not a satisfactory answer, or at least it's not the answer he was looking for. And and, and I think her acknowledgement of that is the fact that she goes on, right? He is, as you have seen him, right? And then she goes on to explain about his being master, Right? And that, I think, is that's her only answer to the question, to that implied question. Who is he? Big picture. How does he fit? What's his story? In what way is he significant? What's his pedigree? Again, not just what is he in the sense of, like, ontologically speaking, what is his nature? Right? Is he a Maiar or not, for instance? You know, is he, is he, is he Maiar or not? I don't think that that's it's only that. I think that it is that, but it's not only that, that Frodo's asking. He's also asking, like, why is he here? What's his job? What's his, you know, all of those kind of, like, the, the, like the kind of thing that is revealed to him when he finds out that Strider is actually the heir of Isildur. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, so, I, so, Brandon, coming back then to the thing that you're emphasizing, it's interesting to me that Frodo's asking this, but he feels sheepish asking it. Right, um, he uh, uh, he. By saying, "If my asking does not seem foolish," again, he he seems to be. Normally, that wouldn't be a foolish question, in a sense. Right? I mean, like if you meet somebody who's obviously like you're not obviously just a random dude living out in a cottage in the woods, right? You have some kind of standing. 
you have some kind of power, some kind of authority. Where did you get your power? Where did you, you know, are you, you know, so what are you? What's your role? What's your job? What's your background? Right? There's, there's, there's a story here. Tell me, what is the, what is the story? What makes you a big deal? <laughs> right? Um, what should I know about, like, who am I really talking to here? Right? I should know that, shouldn't I? And that's why he asks Goldberry first. He doesn't ask Tom. Right? Because he seems to want to be like, okay, um, is, you know, it's almost like, like, is there a title I should be using? You know, do I like, uh, do, you know, do I bow? Like, is it, is he a lord of some kind? Is he, is he one of the, like, what is he? Who is he? Like, what's significant? The, but again, so in a sense, the surprising thing is that he should think that question potentially foolish, right? So in a sense, I think, there's almost a way in which he instinctively anticipates that it's in an inappropriate, that it's a question that's not going to have a clear answer, right? Ask it of Strider and you'll get a, you know, eventually you'll get a clear answer, right? Who is Strider? He is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Sildur, and, you know, the future king of Gondor, right? That's who he is. There is no answer to the who he is with Tom Bombadil. And remember, Frodo has already been by this point. He's been, he's already had his moment of enchantment, right, where he burst out into Bombadilian song, right? Um, uh, and, uh, um, uh, you know, so he's already kind of come under the, he's kind of entered into the spirit of the house, and I think the way in which he's already kind of entered into the spirit sort of informs his hesitation there, right? Um, again, normally, it would be a kind of normal question to to ask here, much uh, much less so. Um, yeah, Tillian, I, I, I'm, that's a really good point. Uh, Tillian is saying, I can't decide if the stress is he is, um, as in the God sense that many people see, or if it's he is. Um, uh, like that guy over there is Tom Bombadil. You've already met him. First, he is is not God's name, right? Uh, God's name is I am that I am, right? Um, the whole sort of point of um, the whole point, uh, the, the first person is really essential. Um, the name of God is not he is. The name of God is I am. And that's an important difference, right? The first person perspective is is a, a crucial element uh, of that whole traditional construction. Um, and remember, Tolkien alludes to that and specifically and he's not just backpedaling there you know he's saying like that's a totally different thing to say I am that I am is a totally different thing what the name of God does that just to give you my personal opinion on that what the name of God there does is basically deny there is there is no way to complete that sentence right to say anything to put any kind of uh, either adjective or noun after the phrase I am when describing God, is to limit him, right? To identify him as a thing, right? And the whole point is that God is saying is not saying, I'm this, or I'm that, or I'm this kind of way, or I'm that kind of way. The name of God is I am, full stop, right? Um, it's about being and embracing all of these things and not being able to pigeonhole him in a particular place. That's not what Goldberry's saying about Tom. He is, doesn't say that. Right? What she's claiming is that he exists. 
which is pretty clear, right? Um, and so, in a sense, Tilly, and I think, I think it's in a sense, it's more that second sense, right? Um, he is, right? He is, and because again, look at how she finishes the sentence. He is as you've seen him, right? He is. At, the point is not that, like ontologically speaking, there is no answer because he is everything. The point is that the answer to that question defies language, right? Like he is himself. She makes the point that like you can't answer that question in a non um, uh, uh, sort of recursive way, right? He is himself is the answer. Again, God's name is not he is himself, right? Um, his name is I am what I am, right? I am full stop. Um, uh, Tom Bombadil is himself, right? How else can you, what does that even mean? How else can you define him? She's talking as Tolkien uh, goes on in his commentary, you know, his analysis of that line in his letter that we read to talk about, um, uh, to talk about the function of names, right? And of uh, the relationship between names and being. Um, So, um, yeah, Valori says it's a very Irish sort of mentality. He's just like himself. Yeah, exactly. What's Tom Bombadil like? He's just like himself. That's exactly. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, Tony says I think she's also saying that there's no big secret. Tom is exactly what you see. Yeah, exactly. He is as you have seen him. Right. There's in a sense, there's nothing more. Again, that's what's implied in Frodo's question. Right. Obviously, there's more to him than what we've seen. Right. He looks like a kind of dorky guy who lives in a cabin in the woods. Right. But but there's more. Right. What's the more. Right. That's again, in a sense, what he's asking. And she's like, he is a kind of dorky guy who lives in a cabin in the woods. Right. That's who he is. Um uh, that's, there is no other answer. Exactly. Tom. Um, okay. But, uh, but again, I, th- that acknowledgement, if my asking does not seem foolish, um, I, the fact that he sees, the fact that he sees that his question is potentially missing the point, I think is sort of a glimmer of wisdom on Frodo's part. He half anticipates the sort of non-answer he's going to get. Right. Um, but, uh, okay. Um, so, uh, let's, uh, let's keep going. Now dreams. Ready? Time to talk about dreams. Lots of preambles here today, but that's okay. No regrets. In the dead night, Frodo lay in a dream without light. Then he saw the young moon rising. Under its thin light, there loomed before him a black wall of rock, pierced by a dark arch like a great gate. It seemed to Frodo that he was lifted up, and passing over he saw that the rock wall was a circle of hills, and that within it was a plain, and in the midst of the plain stood a pinnacle of stone, like a vast tower, but not made by hands. On its top stood the figure of a man. The moon as it rose seemed to hang for a moment above his head, and glistened in his white hair as the wind stirred it. Up from the dark plain below came the crying of fell voices, and the howling of many wolves. Suddenly a shadow, like the shape of great wings, passed across the moon, The figure lifted his arms, and a light flashed from the staff that he wielded. A mighty eagle swept down and bore him away. The voices wailed, and the wolves yammered. There was a noise like a strong wind blowing, and on it was borne the sound of hoofs, galloping, galloping, galloping from the east. 
Black Riders, thought Frodo as he wakened, with the sound of the hoofs still echoing in his mind. He wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. He lay motionless, still listening, but all was now silent, and at last he turned and fell asleep again, or wandered into some other unremembered dream. Okay. Um, what do you notice about this dream? Right. First of all, um, one really sort of fun element of this dream is that uh, just to, to make a brief allusion to the uh, discussion of this dream that we had in our Mythgard Academy discussions as we've been reading The Return of the Shadow and The Treason of Isengard, um, the first version, so the dream of the tower that he already had, the one he had at, at that night in Crick Hollow, the night before this one, of course, though it seems quite a long time ago, uh, but that was only one night ago in Frodo's world. Um, so the dream he had the previous night in, in Crick Hollow, remember that's the one where he's looking out over the forest and there are creatures creeping around, and then all of a sudden he is on a heath and there's a tower and he can hear the sea, right? Um, originally, when Tolkien first drafted that passage, the reason Gandalf was away was that he was cornered in a tower, one of those elf towers. Um, well, probably wasn't an elf tower at the time, but anyway, one of those towers out by the sea, and he was trapped there by Black Riders. So Gandalf had been pursued by the Black Riders, and he had taken refuge in one of these towers, and the Black Riders couldn't drive him out of the tower, but they were basically besieging him in that tower. So he was a prisoner in the tower, and that's why he doesn't show up to meet Frodo. That was, like, way back when, one of the early draft versions of, uh, sort of the explanation of Gandalf's movement. Uh, movements. So, the interesting thing is that the original vision, the original dream that Frodo had, contained both of those elements, right? It contained the, uh, vision of the sea, Right and his encounter with the sea and and his kind of like the way that he's deeply troubled by the the dream of the sea, and also the I'm having a like real time insight into what's happening somewhere else. Right, and as we talked about when we talked about that dream, this is a trend. Right, we've already seen in the Hobbit. We see this um, that one of the in the category of significant dreams that people have, the most prevalent kind of significant dream is when you dream of something that is actually happening uh, in the waking world, either around you or somewhere else at the same time, right? Um, it doesn't always happen, but that is a, that is a fairly common kind of, uh, uh, of, of significant dream. Um, and that was Tolkien's first impulse with the dream of the tower. We saw, of course, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, that that element has been removed, so that the dream that he has in Crick Hollow, the dream of the of the forest and then the tower, is totally separated. It's not a current events dream at all, right? This is more like a current events dream, right? As of course we recognized, we recognize what is being described here, right? He sees in some detail. Um, Isengard, right? There's a black wall of rock and there's a dark arch in it, right? And then he passes over the rock wall and there's a circle of hills with a plain inside and a tower that looks like it's not made uh, by hands. 
and then a man standing up on top, a man with white hair standing up on top. A man, you know, so um, this is we we know in retrospect, right, that this is Gandalf being imprisoned in Orthanc. Uh, and we see his escape, right? We see that a, an eagle is, you know, comes down and rescues him. We don't get any of the backstory, right? Um, but uh, we get we get the rescue uh, by the eagle and the sudden crying of fell voices and the howling of many wolves, right? Um, and the eagle sweeping down and bearing him away, the voices wailing and the wolves yammering and a noise like a strong wind blowing. That was something that he had in his first dream, too, in the Crick Hollow dream, the strong wind, right? That's a recurring feature now. Um, but... Um, Amethorn, that's the really interesting point. So on the one hand, initially, this seems simple, right? This seems like cut and dried. This is this is a current event stream. We've seen it before. Um, except it's not a current events dream. It's a recent events dream. Um, Gandalf is not on Orthanc. This is not happening this evening. The timelines don't measure up. And that's fine. You know, that's fine. I'm not... It's... But there are two things here. First, another thing we've seen in the Treason of Isengard discussion is that Tolkien labored and labored and labored over the time frames. Right? So... The uh, the fact that this is the wrong time for him to have this dream is not a mere slip, right? Um, it's not like Tolkien trying to line this up and just dropping the ball, right? He knew that the time frame didn't line up, but he kept it in anyway, right? Um, so yeah, Gandalf has already escaped. This is a this is a past events thing, but again, Tolkien still keeps this in here. Um, what's the significance of this? What's the significance of this? Why Why would Frodo have this dream? What is the function of Frodo having this dream? Right? When I say why, I'm not trying to say like what was in Tolkien's head when he did this. I'm saying what is the... What is the... He has this this dream is there for a reason, right? And we spent a lot of time looking at his first dream. What is the tendency of that first dream, right? Is if, if, if something is being communicated to him and it seems significant, the dream, right? What is it that's being communicated, right? Similarly here. Um, <laughs> no, Bruinier, it is not a dream stating that Balrogs have wings. Uh, Balrog is right out of this. The dark wings are just eagle wings, right? Um, note, another thing that interests me here, Gandalf is not identified in the dream, right? All we're told is that there was a figure of a man on top of the tower, and that he has white hair glistening and he has a staff, Right? The figure lifted his arms and a light flashed from the staff that he wielded. So he's wielding a staff, he's got white hair, uh, and he's a man. Right? That's all we know 
about the dude on the tower in Frodo's dream. Um, and I, so I agree, mad, the mad violinist says, you know, it reconnects us with a larger story where we might have gotten lost in the woods. It is, it provides a kind of hint, right? We're still at the, where is, um, where is Gandalf, right? Why didn't Gandalf show up for the party? That's still a mystery at this point in the story. So on the one hand, we're getting kind of a hint, right? Except he's not identified as Gandalf, right? Not clearly. Um, Amethorn says, at first I wasn't sure if it was Gandalf or Saruman. Yeah, exactly, Amethorn. We have very little data. I mean, in retrospect, we know what it is, right? Um, but if you were picking up the Fellowship of the Ring in 1954 and reading it through, you wouldn't have any reason to know that this had anything to do with Saruman the White. Saruman the White has been mentioned back in Chapter 2. But what is that place? The tower in the middle of the plain in the valley surrounded by hills with the wall, the stone walls. We've never seen that before. We have no idea what it is, right? Or where it is. So... um, that um we again we have to we have to sort of watch our our assumptions there right um is it saruman is it gandalf and it's and and why isn't it identified right um and since it's not identified what does that sort of suggest to us about the significance uh of the dream um Yeah, I agree that the details would tend to make us think about Gandalf Tillian. I agree. I agree. I think, I mean, if, if again, even if we've never read anything else before me, we've read The Hobbit and we've read Up to Here in The Fellowship of the Ring, and if somebody forced us to guess, we'd probably guess that it was Gandalf, especially since there's a mystery about Gandalf and where he is, right? Um JJS, do we have any reason to think of Saruman or any other specific non-Gandalfian character at this point? Um, we've heard of Saruman, as I said. We don't have any necessary reason to think of him. Um, white-haired dude holding staff is probably Gandalf, right? Um, but James, I, I, that I think is the important point. The reader is left in the same state as Frodo, not being really sure um, what it meant. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, Brandon, I agree. We, we, we know that Saruman exists, but we don't really know anything about him. We certainly know nothing about Isengard, right? Or Orthanc or anything like that. Um, now, Marielle, great question. Marielle asks... When dreams like this happen in Tolkien, is there any consistent circumstance? Are the dreamers always near bodies of water, or just having consumed the food of higher beings, or something like that? Great questions. No. No. Um, One of the clearest examples that we get of this kind of dream is Bilbo's in the Goblin Tunnel, right? When he dreams of the crack opening and closing, and we're led to understand that he's not just, like, awake and thinking that he's dreaming. He's actually dreaming, 
and he has a dream of what is actually happening uh, in the cave around him. That's, um, uh, he's not, he, neither of those things is true, right? Um, so is there any condition that's sort of similar? Um, I don't, I don't think so, necessarily. I don't see any, any clear trend. Um, yeah, um, okay. Yeah, so Amethor and I agree. Back to the question. Why is Frodo having this dream? Well, let's look at the second half of it, too, before we come to answer that question. Um, Because coupled with the vision of this white-haired dude with staff, right, who gets swept away by an eagle, um, and uh, by the way, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, in retrospect, we know what it is, right? We know that he's being rescued. But is that obvious? The wind is stirring his hair. There are fell voices and howling coming up from the valley around him. Um, he lifts up his arms and a light flashes from the staff. Is he fighting the eagle? Right? Could be. And the mighty eagle sweeps down and bears him away to eat it. I mean... We have a precedent for this, right? The Hobbit leads us to expect that when an eagle swoops down and takes somebody away, it's probably a rescue, right? So the parallel between Gandalf being, you know, Gandalf and the dwarves being rescued out of the top of the tree by the eagles, the trees by the eagles, and this person being carried away from the top of the tower, that parallel suggests that it's a rescue, right? But it's not open and shut, right? Um... Yeah, Arrowhead points out, unless the swoopy is a sheep, right? As, of course, the Lord of the Eagle acknowledges that normally they would be after their sheep. Um, but, yeah, Marielle, that's exactly the point that I'm building towards. Marielle says it's striking how afraid Frodo is. If the dream was meant to comfort, it failed quite dramatically. Yeah, yeah, it's this is a scary dream, right? Um so let me, because because look where it segues from here. So, this figure has just been swooped down upon and carried off by an eagle, for reasons we don't know. There was a noise like strong wind blowing, and on it was borne the sound of hoofs galloping, galloping, galloping from the east. Black riders thought Frodo as he wakened, with the sound of the hoofs still echoing in his mind. He wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. Um, notice we have commentary from Frodo. Notice also that the commentary from Frodo doesn't include Gandalf, right? That's the thing that I find kind of puzzling, right? He does resp- he does identify. He hears the galloping of the hooves and says, Black Riders, right? But he doesn't burst up from the first part of that uh, dream and say, uh, Gandalf, Right? Um, now, Catriona, I agree with you that it's the galloping sound that makes him afraid, not the eagle element of the, of the scene, right? Totally agree with that. Um, and yet, you know, the two of them, uh, the two of them do go together, right? Um, uh... Mike, by the way, Mike has a question. I don't know the answer to your question, Mike. Mike asks, why, why hoofs instead of hooves? 
Um, I don't know the answer, Mike, but you can bet your bottom dollar that Tolkien could give you a a, a twenty minute answer to that question. <laughs> I am sure uh, that there is a long. Uh, philological answer to the question of why he put hoofs instead of hooves uh, there. I don't know it, but I'm, sh- I'm quite sure there is one. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Several of you are pointing out the the similarity or like the reversed status of the dwarfs and dwarves pluralization issue, right, that Tolkien had in The Hobbit, especially. Um, yeah, yeah. JJ suggests it's a trade-off, right? Uh, yeah. Um, Matt, yes, I agree. Frodo will act with surprise when he finally connects the dream to Gandalf. Um, I, I agree. To, it's a little spoiler here for a couple months from now. When Frodo in the in the um, Council of Elrond realizes, you know, remembers the dream and connects it with Gandalf. He's so surprised that he bursts out and interrupts in the council. Right? I saw you, he says. The wind was in you know, the moon was in your hair. Um he didn't he didn't I, so does that mean he doesn't it never even occurred to him that it was Gandalf at the time? Does it mean that he was so overwhelmed by the fear brought on by the galloping hooves that he forgot the earlier part? of the dream entirely and was only now remembering it. And of course, as soon as he remembers it, realizes that it was Gandalf helped by Gandalf's own description of his imprisonment, which so closely matches uh, the dream that he, uh, the dream that he was having. Um, So yeah, it's entirely possible. Lincoln was just suggesting that. Um, So yeah. So here's my, here's my theory. If we assume if we assume that if Frodo remembers the dream, that he probably would connect it with Gandalf, right? So let's let's assume that for now. Let's assume that um, Frodo would recognize that it's Gandalf. It makes a certain sense that Frodo would have a dream of Gandalf. Or rather, let's come at that a different from a different angle. Um, what would be the effect of Frodo having a dream of Gandalf's captivity and rescue? Right? I think, clearly, the effect would be he would be thinking... He'd be relieved, right? Because he's been wondering, A, where the heck is Gandalf? Why didn't he come back? Um, Possibly even feelings of anxiety or betrayal, Right? Why did Gandalf leave me to face this by myself? Why did, There are black riders in the Shire. I'm being hounded. I'm on my own. Where the heck is Gandalf, right? Answer to your question, Frodo, right? He has been captured, right? He has been prevented, forcibly prevented from coming to you. But wait, Frodo, there's more. He's been rescued, right? So we're going to give a, a, a we're going to give you a vision which not only explains the answer to your question, where is Gandalf and why didn't he meet me on time, but also gives you some encouraging news, right? But don't worry, he has escaped. So he might be, he might be coming, right? That seems to be... It's, it's hard for me to say, again, assuming that he recognizes Gandalf or, or, or thinks 
believes that it's Gandalf, that would seem to be the inescapable conclusion that Frodo would draw from that earlier part. So I have to suspect, anyway, that the f- that this dream, the initial dream he's given, the Gandalf portion of the dream is given as a comfort to him, right? Um, this is what he's, he's sort of supposed to take from it. Um, but... Then the dream turns and becomes a dream of fear. But you know what? I just thought of something for the very first time ever. There was a noise like a strong wind blowing, and on it was borne the sound of hoofs, galloping, galloping, galloping from the east. What's he hearing? What's he hearing? Black Riders is his interpretation, right? Is he right? What if he's misreading his dream? <laughs> yes, Brandon, Shadow Facts! The Black Riders aren't the only hooves that are coming to him from the east, right? Following along a very similar trail to the trail that the Black Riders have followed is Gandalf, right? And in fact, it fits exactly what we've seen, right? Um, Lincoln's shadow facts is coming from the south. So are the Black Riders. He's coming up the same path that they came up, Um and he's and and where he's coming, Rohan is east of the shed, also south. But again, so are the Black Riders coming up the Greenway, right? Um, yes, the text says east, but again, like get, that 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 that's what they just showed him, right? The vision that he just saw was Gandalf being rescued. Where's he taken, right? We know what happens to him, right? Because we're told the story. What direction is he taken from the tower? East. Right? And then from the east, he is riding, right? From Eteras, as fast as he can, back to the Shire. What if? Just, just a suggestion. What if? The whole point, from beginning to end of this dream, is supposed to be comfort. Gandalf couldn't come meet you because he was captured. He wanted to, right? But he was prevented. But don't worry. He escaped, Right? He's been rescued. And by eagles. Just like before. Right? And just like in Bilbo's story. Right? So he was rescued by eagles. And wait! There's more! He's coming! As fast as he can! Gallop, gallop, gallop! He's on the way! Right? It's possible that that's the entire thing. And notice, he, um... Uh... It's Frodo's reaction. There's no other reason to think that it's the Black Riders. If anything, um, you know, Lincoln, you're still quibbling with the direction. I hear you. But if anything, the Black Riders aren't coming from the east. They're in the west, behind him, right? It's over their shoulder that they're looking for the Black Riders, right? Um, Now, are the Black Riders to the east of them as well? Yes. Yes, they are, right? Um, But... um, but anyway, yeah, I um, 
Um, I don't... So did Gandalf meet up with Shadowfax at this point? Yes. Um, yeah, he does. He does. He rides Shadowfax up. Into, now he, uh, Gandalf lets him go. Um, so he's not still with him when he gets to when he gets to Rivendell, um, but yeah, Gandalf rides Shadowfax up into the north. Um, uh, so uh, yep, yeah, you know, no, no, there's Gandalf and Shadowfax. It could totally be Shadowfax. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, and yes, uh, Arthur, I think that's a great point. The, the triple galloping, right? Galloping, galloping, galloping. Um, uh, Arthur was uh, reading this to suggest speed, right? To, to, to you know, to, to, and which would fit with, uh, um, with Shadowfax, right? Uh, that he's, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, right? Um, and no, Katrina, we don't know about Shadowfax yet, but we don't know about Isengard either, right? This is a dream that we don't have the tools to interpret yet in this story. Right? We can't figure this out. The only one element of this whole story... Okay, two elements. There are only two elements that we have. Right? One is the dude, with the, the dude with the white hair with the staff, who is probably Gandalf. You know, as we were thinking, we know about Saruman, but we don't have any necessary reason to believe that it is Saruman. We were told nothing about Saruman, apart from the fact that he was associated with the color white, and this dude has white hair. So it is like... There's a very tenuous suggestion that maybe we could interpret that as Saruman, but we know Gandalf quite a bit better. And what's more, we've already seen Gandalf rescued from a high place by an eagle swooping down and taking him away, right? So, um, I do think that we have, uh, um, and we don't have any context for the rest of it. In retrospect, we can recognize Isengard and Orthanc and the orcs and wargs of, you know, that live there in the valley, but we have no reason to, th- at this point in, the, in chapter seven, we have no context to interpret that, right? So literally the one element of this entire dream that we even have a, any kind of indicator for is the dude with white hair and staff who makes light flash from his staff as Gandalf does on so many different occasions um, uh, and 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 the eagle swooping and rescuing him, right? So the best we could do is a Gandalf dream. No, we don't know that Shadow, that he, we've never heard the name of Shadowfax, we don't know that he's given a horse, but he seems to be a distance away, Right? Whatever tower that is, we don't recognize it, and Frodo doesn't seem to recognize it. So he's coming from a he's coming from a distance. And by the way, I absolutely agree with those of you who are talking about um, um, who are talking about the onomatopoetic element of uh, galloping, 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 um, and how much that sounds like uh, the galloping of hooves. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, so. Anyway, yeah. Oh, and the wolves, Tony. They're being rescued from the wolves, right? There are wolves around and orcs, right? No, fell voices. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mention orcs, does it? No, fell voices. But, you know, fell voices sounds a little bit orcish. But, but, but again, I, I agree with the point. It makes the parallel to Gandalf's rescue in The Hobbit more... Um, more pointed, right? 
So, I don't want to get to several of you are talking about Shadowfax and his name. We'll totally get there someday. But I want to... Um, um, I want to focus on what we get here, what, what Frodo is getting here from the dream, because it seems Frodo misses the point. As it seems to, if this dream has a point, the dream is, the point of the dream is a, a comfort dream. Explanation. Don't worry about Gandalf. And he's coming, right? Don't worry, he's coming. And instead, Frodo's response is the Black Riders, right? Because that's what he's afraid of. And here's another thing that occurs to me. Remember his last dream. It worked the other way around. Remember his dream starts off like an anxiety dream. He's in Crick Hollow. They've already decided they're going to go into the old forest the next day. Right Before the break of day, they're heading into the old forest. And his dream starts off like an anxiety dream. Right, He dreams about a dark forest. And in that, and the wind is stirring the branches right, so that it looks like a sea. And within that forest, are, there are things creeping around that are hunting and snuffling around, you know, probably hunting for him. Right, And so this seems to be an anxiety dream which combines two different things, right? First, his dread of entering the Old Forest, and second, his fear of the Black Riders that have been pursuing him and sniffing for him for the last couple days, right? Starts off as an anxiety dream, and then it shifts. Shifts, and we get the sea, and the tower, and um, it seems that, like, we now interrupt this anxiety dream to give you a hope dream, an obscure hope dream, right? But a hope dream, nevertheless. He seems to be being given a message, not a very clear message, but still a message of hope, right? Here, it works almost opposite to that. He seems to be being given a hope dream from the beginning, right? And a much more direct one, um, because it's a it's in that other genre of current events dreams, right? Or again, recent events dreams. Um, and in a sense, a, a recent events dream is even more encouraging. Not that he knows it's a recent events dream necessarily, but but in a sense it is, right? Here's what happened a little while ago. He's galloping, galloping, and he's almost there now, right? Um, that's the reality, right? But instead of being comforted, instead of being relieved, he experiences only fear. Right? He experiences only... Um, he reinterprets it. It's like the anxiety reasserts itself at the end instead of being driven away from the beginning. Black Riders! Of course, that's what the galloping means. Um, and I, until tonight, I literally always assumed that Frodo was correct about that. Um, that the, a dream of the Black Riders begins to break into uh, his dream of Gandalf's rescue. Now that works too, right? We can totally make that work. So he's having this encouragement hope dream and then something happens, right? Just like we saw his dream shift before, now it shifts the other way, right? And the whatever hope or consolation or relief would be brought to him by finding out where Gandalf was and seeing that he's been rescued um, is overwhelmed by the much more proximate terror of the Black Riders and they're hunting for you and they're galloping after you. That's how I always read it before. But I think it's even cooler if 
it's not that. It's his own interpretation, right? It's his own reading of it. Um, he forgets about Gandalf and seems to quite liter- quite completely forget about that whole first part of his dream. And when he wakes up, all he's going to remember. As he wakes up, all he thinks is, Black Riders! Right? I just had a nightmare of Black Riders, and that's all that he recalls. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and he wonders if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. Right? His fear really sets in. Um, the sound of hoofs is still echoing in his mind as he wakes up. Right? Um, and what he associates, what he associates with those. Um, so he... Now, I agree, um, uh, I agree, Arthur, that correct dream interpretation usually requires a wiser or better informed third party, right? It's not unusual for the dreamer not to understand or to misunderstand the dream. Um, I agree, I agree. Um, but we should address the suggestion that several of you have been making, Brandon, I know you were just making this a minute ago. Um, Could the ring be involved? Right? Could his turn to fear there at the end be influenced by the ring? My answer? In theory? Sure. (laughs) I see no reason why not, necessarily. Um... But I don't know that we have real, like a real clear reason necessarily to believe that. Um, I don't know. I, um, we can say that and we can make it work. Uh, it doesn't, to me, have the obvious... I was about to say, you know, that ring of... of uh, uh, you know, that certain ring to it. Um, <laughs> here's what I mean by that. Yeah. Where I'm most comfortable talking about the effect of the ring on Frodo, or others, is where our attention is really drawn to Frodo's chain of thought. For instance, go back to chapter 2, right? Gandalf tells him to try to throw the ring in the fire, right? And Frodo looks down at the ring, and remember what happens, right? He thinks about how beautiful it is. Right? How perfect is its roundness? Right? And all that. Remember that passage? Um, Our attention is really drawn to what Frodo's chain of thought is. And the whole context has set us up to believe, like, what Gandalf is testing is how much hold does the ring have over him? And immediately afterwards, Gandalf comments on it. See, it already has far too much hold on you. Right? Um, 
So that's the clearest instance that we've gotten of the ring influencing Frodo directly. Um, And again, what we got there was the narrator drawing our attention to Frodo's chain of thought. Um, We don't get that here, right? Um, We get this, yeah, Ketrana, a knee-jerk reaction um, that a fearful interpretation of this. It doesn't seem to me unlike something the ring would do. I mean, remember the other time that I think it's pretty clear that we're seeing the ring's influence on Frodo that we've already seen so far is that string of rationalizations that um, uh, we saw go through Frodo's mind when he's considering putting on the ring uh, when the Black Rider is creeping towards him in the bushes, right? Um, when it's sniffing its way towards him, we see he, he does the rationalizations, right? Gandalf's prohibitions seemed, seemed absurd. Bilbo had used the ring, and I'm still in the Shire, he says, right? There we have again Frodo explicitly contemplating the ring itself. The question, do I put the ring on or not? Right, And what do we see? We see this string of rationalizations leading him to the conclusion, yeah, you should totally put on the ring. That's an awesome idea, right? So again, that seems like a pretty clear indicator that this is the ring influencing his thoughts and that that's how the ring influences his thoughts. Here, again, it's not that I can't make it fit. I could make it fit, Right? To have Frodo overcome by fear, that's the, um, you know, that's the, 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 the uh, we'll see the ring do that, right? Um, to, to capitalize on Frodo's fear in order to get him to put on the ring, right? Um, and by doing so, reveal the ring uh, to others, especially the ring raids nearby. Um, so... We'll see it doing that kind of thing, but it never comes up. I am... I do find it tempting. Um, yeah, Matt was just saying there's no temptation... He has no temptation to claim the ring or make its presence known to others. Or Yeah, the ring's influences seem really do seem to be focused in a sense on itself, right? On those, on those things. Um... I have yet seen no clear evidence as we've gone through. I'm not, you know, there's a question, a great question. How sentient is the ring, right? How much long-term planning does the ring do? How much planning at all does the ring, how much thinking does the ring do? Um, I'm inclined to think not much. Uh, Tom, you did a great blog post on this uh, several weeks back um, in... uh, Tom, it's uh, Alas Not Me, right, is the name of your blog, Tom. Um, uh, Tom did a really interesting blog po- uh, post on this question of the sentience of the ring. Um, and I generally agree with uh, um, with what uh, Tom said in that post. Um, but uh, anyway, so I'm not at all convinced that... Um, uh, that the ring is is sentient and is making long-term plans and, and sort of hatching a strategy here. If you go there, I mean, if you think about the ring that way, then, yeah, you can kind of imagine, like, okay, this is the ring, like, trying to undermine the hope that he's being given and inspire him with fear so that it can, like, you know, 
prepare the way for stuff later on down the road. But as I said, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's how it works. Um, I'm going to need to be convinced. So we need to look at those, those moments where it explicitly talks about the ring, um, and see if we, you know, what kind of conclusions we can, we can draw about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, uh, Mike says, you know, the whole dream seems like a swing and a miss for the powers that be. Yes. So I, I agree, Mike. It seems to be the powers that be are sending him a dream, right? And that dream seems to be intended to comfort him and to give him hope. Uh, uh, but it it doesn't accomplish that. So why doesn't it, it... Was it undermined, right? Is this like the ring fighting back and preventing him from being comforted? Again, like, that can work. It can be made to work. I don't think I buy that, but it could be made to work. Um, but to me, what seems even more powerful here is Lincoln exactly that. It has to do with free will, right? That this is Frodo. Um, Frodo, it's Frodo that's kind of blowing it, right? Um, they're giving him, they're sort of offering him this vision of hope and encouragement, and he whiffs at it. I think it's Frodo that's whiffing, essentially, because it's his interpretation. His latching on to that one point and insisting, it's the Black Riders, right? Um, I, I think, uh, I think that that's, I think that's Frodo's choice. I think it's Frodo's interpretive choice that derails things here. Um, yeah. Um, let's, um, we'll of course get more ring action, right? Not too long from now. In the next day, right, as they're sitting around in the house of Tom Bombadil, we'll get that really interesting ring moment, right? So we'll get more of a chance to see the ring's influence and the ring's power there. Um, yeah, Tony's suggesting Olmo is transmitting him a dream through, through the withy window. What could be more likely, <laughs> right? That's exactly the kind of thing that we see. Um, and yeah, I, I quite possible. Can we make it, you know, d- does that fit into what we see of Tolkien's mythology? Totally it does, right? Uh, could absolutely see that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, let's look at the second dream. We're getting a little bit late, but I started late tonight. I apologize for that. So I want to do at least one more dream. At his side, Pippin lay dreaming pleasantly. But a change came over his dreams, and he turned and groaned. Suddenly he woke, or thought he had waked, and yet still heard in the darkness the sound that had disturbed his dream. Tip-tap. Squeak. The noise was like branches fretting in the wind, twig fingers scraping wall and window. Creak. 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 He wondered if there were willow trees close to the house, and then suddenly he had a dreadful feeling that he was not in an ordinary house at all, but inside the willow, and listening to that horrible, dry, creaking voice laughing at him again. He sat up, and felt the soft pillows yield to his hands, and he lay down again, relieved. He seemed to hear the echo of words in his ears. Fear nothing. Have peace until the morning. Heed no nightly noises. Then he went to sleep again. So, 
What do you notice here, right? This is different. Now, this is, right, Lady Shmebiwak says, this is a PTSD dream, right? Um, Pippin has had a very traumatic experience earlier today, and he dreams about it, which is not shocking, right? Um, And I think it's really interesting that he has this fearful dream, but I think it's really interesting that final moment in the the final moment of panic when he thinks, wait, I'm still inside the willow. Um, and of course, you know what I couldn't help thinking about was uh, um, the witch house thing that we were talking about before, you know, Tolkien's initial idea and the way that we're talking about the, like the, 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 how the house of Tom Bombadil invokes some unpleasant traditional fairy tale parallels, right? Except this is, the good magic house in the middle of the woods, not the bad, one of those bad magic houses in the middle of the woods. Um, so, uh, um, anyway, I, uh, I, I, I do think that, um, it's interesting that he has that one, like, maybe this was all a lie. Maybe it was all set up, right? Maybe I'm, maybe this, I'm actually still in the willow. Um, and that's to me a really interesting kind of turn there for Pippin. And then he hears the voice, right? Goldberry's voice, because these are Goldberry's words. Heed no nightly noises, right? Fear nothing, have peace until the morning. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Tarloniel, exactly. Pippin and Mary recall the spell of warding laid on them by Tom and Goldberry. Um... When they wake up in fear, that spell is sort of still protecting them, right? That's what they recall, and they're immediately relieved. The fear is broken by the memory of the words, Fear nothing, have peace until the morning, heed no nightly noises, which, of course, is what he was just doing, right? And then he goes back to sleep and is fine. Um, Yes, Arthur, the reassurance works. The shape of his dream is very different from the shape of Frodo's dream. Um, and the reaction. Notice there's no memory of Goldberry's. Goldberry's reassurances don't come in for Frodo. Goldberry or Tom's reassurances? Um, he could be told to heed no nightly noises, right? Uh, to remember that nothing can come in. And in a sense, you remember, Frodo recalls that, Right? Um, he wondered if he would ever again have the courage to leave the safety of these stone walls. He knows that the stone walls are safe, right? Even if the Black Riders did come, they couldn't get in, right? They couldn't catch him. Um, so, in a sense, Frodo remembers the reassurance, but he's not reassured by it. He uh, has... He's still afraid, right? Um that by itself inclines me again towards the interpretation that Frodo is misinterpreting his dream, right? The spell of warding, right? The spell of protection, the blessing laid upon the hobbits by Tom and Goldberry protects them from fearful dreams in the night. But they're not gonna, it's not going to protect Frodo from his dream because his dream isn't a fearful dream, or it shouldn't be right? His own, the anxiety that he brings to it, right? The misreading in this, in this uh, argument, 
that he jumps to, that's his own business. He's not being afflicted from without by a dream of fear. Um, so yes, uh, Arthur, the threat in Pippin's nightmare is specifically dispelled by the power that gave the words of reassurance. Frodo's dream isn't dispelled in the same way. Um, it doesn't seem subject to it in the same, in the same way. Um, Mary's dream. It was the sound of water that Mary heard falling into his quiet sleep. Water streaming down gently, and then spreading, spreading irresistibly all round the house into a dark shoreless pool. It gurgled under the walls, and was rising slowly but surely. I shall be drowned, he thought. It will find its way in, and then I shall drown. He felt that he was lying in a soft, slimy bog, and springing up, he set his foot on the corner of a cold, hard flagstone. Then he remembered where he was, and lay down again. He seemed to hear, or remember hearing, nothing passes doors or windows, save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. A little breath of sweet air moved the curtain. He breathed deep and fell asleep again. Okay, so, um, uh, Mary, what's Mary's dream about? He also has a, like a, a, an anxiety dream, right? Um, Where does his dream come from? Pippin's is pretty clear, right? He dreams he's still inside the willow. That he's hearing that terrible voice. You know, PTSD dream. What about Mary's? Mary's is kind of interesting to me. Um... Yes, Tom well remembered. This is not the last time Mary will feel like he's plunged into deep water. Yeah, <clears throat> it will be good to remember Mary's dream later on. Um, but James, that seems to be the simple, clear way to understand it, given what we know right now, right? Um, Mary and Pippin's dreams are of the forest and the river. The withy window is the center from which all the queerness comes, as it were, Right? Um, and what are the, you know, Old Man Willow sings of, of, of water and of sleep, right? Um, so the hobbits are being driven. It's Frodo, of course, who gets driven to the water, not Merry or Pippin. But both of these, Merry's dream seems to be a holdover from Old Man Willow, just the same, or to be influenced by Old Man Willow and the spell of Old Man Willow just as much as Pippin's was. Right? Um, again, with Pippin, it's more explicit. He's hearing Old Man Willow's voice. He's imagining he's inside the willow. But the idea of water spreading, right? The dream of water. And Old Man Willow was singing of water, right? Um, now, again, it's not. This is not the same thing. It's not like Frodo wanting to bathe his feet, right? That's not the kind of dream. He's not having a foot bathing dream, exactly. So it's not precisely what we saw before. But, what was Mary's day like? I mean, yeah, he gets caught in a crack, right? He is at least half-eaten by the tree, just like Pippin. But that wasn't the only thing that happened to Mary. What was the rest of Mary's day like? Remember, remember what happens to Mary? What's Mary's role in the previous day? 
What does Mary spend chapter 6 doing before he culminates his day halfway inside a willow tree? Yeah, Arthur, he dreams specifically of a flood coming into the house. Mary's dream is a dream of inevitability, right? This sense of of doom pressing in upon him, coming in, surrounding him, right? And this sort of inescapable tide of death, right, that's coming at him. Um... Yeah, Lincoln, exactly. He was the leader of the party, who's supposed to be guiding them, and he spent his whole day being led around the forest and pushed around by trees, right? Um, He, uh, yeah, exactly, Tony. He was cheering on the party and being, being the leader of the party, but failing, right? And it's not just getting them lost, even when Pippin jokes with him about that, right? Hasn't taken you, taken you long to lose us, and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, his uh, Pippin's opening, open challenging of him, right? But who made the path, I wonder, right? Um, it's, not just, it's not just those things, right? Mary has... There is a sense in which Mary set out to, like, fight the forest, and he lost, right? Um, and... Uh, yeah, Galandar exactly he spent the whole day being optimistic that they were about to find their way out. And what happened? They were hopelessly enmeshed. They were ensnared, right? Um, they were drawn into the center and engulfed by the forest, right? Old Man Willow was singing of water. And what happens with the water? The dream, His dream of the flood here... Um, and not just like a flood rushing down like the ford of Bruin in upon him, right? But uh, the water creeping in to the room and like slowly rising until he drowns, right? That sense of um, I'm being surrounded and slowly and inexorably engulfed. There's something in there which seems to me kind of similar to his experience in trying to lead them through to the other side of the wood. I mean, it's 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 figurative, right? It's metaphorical. It's it's not literal. Like Pippin's dream is much more literal, right? He dreams about being inside the uh, the the willow tree. Mary doesn't have that literal uh, of a dream, right? Um, but it seems to me figuratively connected with this terrifying experience he had, which was still in the end, down to Old Man Willow. It's still an Old Man Willow anxiety dream, um, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And good, right, Matt, exactly. The water is rising out of a marsh or bog rather than a flash flood. Yes, exactly. Um, Even the image, Matt, of the marsh or bog, right, has that same sense of being bogged down, right, of that uh, not of, again, not being pl- it's not like he's falling into water or like water is just sweeping over him. Those would be different kinds of experiences. Um, he's drowning, or he's worried about drowning like you would drown in a swamp, not like you would drown in the ocean or like you would drown um, at the Fort of Bruin Inn, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, you're right, Mike. Uh, you can tell that Mary had uh, a better education as he doesn't say, uh, uh, I shall be drowned, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, good. Um, 
Tony, great point, right? Tony says, maybe this river woman isn't all that benevolent, because Tony, you are absolutely right that we do have an image of water invading the house, right? When they come in and they see her surrounded by her earthenware bowls of water and water lilies, it looks like the river has come into the house, right? And that river was scary! That was a scary river, right? And that was the river that Old Man Willow was singing about. And Old Man Willow wanted to either engulf them or drown them, right? Or both. Um, And um, anyway, so... um, uh, And Valori, exactly... Goldberry can't exactly plead innocent to the whole drowning of folks, you know, attempting to drown folks in water, right? Um, so it, it it does seem it's a different kind of anxiety dream. Just like Pippin has that moment where he's like, "Am I actually inside the willow?" Right? And um, um, and Mary has this anxiety dream, a similar anxiety moment, perhaps, right? Are we safe? Is the river coming? Like, is Goldberry bringing the river in? Maybe she's not safe, after all. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so good, good. Um, but again, this, this, the bad spell, right, that is placed upon him in his dreams here is broken, um, by the good spell, the memory of the good spell of Tom and Goldberry. Nothing passes doors or windows save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. The water's not going to come in the the windows, right? Um, they have said nothing passes doors or windows. Um, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Um, Goldberry's history of drowning people. Right. Not mentioned in, in this text. It's in the poem, the original poem, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. That's how she and Tom first meet. She pulls him in uh, uh, and uh, seems to be attempting to drown him. Um, but, you know, it's all it's all good fun. Um, it's a, you know, courtship. She, she was flirting, right, essentially. Um, but again, so it's, it's, it's not there in this text. But even though it's not in this text, there's got to be some uncertainty, right? Just as Pippin asks the question, and remember, from a fairy tale standpoint, if they've read the right books, Pippin's question is a perfectly sensible one to ask. Wait, is this really a perfectly safe house in the middle of the woods? That's probably not likely, right? This is a magic house in the middle of the woods. It's probably a trap, right? These people are probably evil, and they're going to cook us or something, and this is... No, wait, it's actually the willow tree, right? I mean, it's a, it's a series of anxious thoughts, but it's plausible, very plausible. In some ways, the reality of Tom and Goldberry is much more unlikely than that, right? Um, So Mary having... We don't need to know, as we don't know from the Fellowship of the Ring about Goldberry's history of yanking people into the river. We don't need to know that to know, again, like, strange, mysterious, powerful, uh, you know, creature that I, you know, like, spirit associated with water that I met maybe in the end she's not friendly. You know, maybe this is a... Maybe we're being deceived. Maybe this is, we're just being drawn in. Um, you know, that's... Um, that's... Uh, exactly... the Again, the kind of thing that could totally happen, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, JJ, exactly. 
<laughs> you got my reference exactly. Uh, Eustace Scrub would have been completely unsuspecting. Yeah, exactly. He did not read the right kind of books. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. I should let you go. We talked about the three dreams, right? Um, we will come back to the fourth sleeper for next time. Well, we can read it. Short passage. As far as he could remember, Sam slept through the night in deep comfort, if logs are contented. Right? So, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll open next time talking a little bit about Sam and Sam's non-dreaming, right? As we sort of conclude looking at this very interesting night uh, of, uh, of dreams. And then we'll begin our look at the next day. And, of course the conversation they have. Maybe we'll get so far as the conversation they have with Tom Bombadil the next day. So we'll look at that next time. Thanks everybody for joining me. We're going to, it's field trip time. Uh, so I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter and, uh, uh, thanks for joining me on Twitter live here tonight. Uh, join us next week, uh, same time and we'll do more. We'll, 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 we'll get more accomplished there. We'll move on a little bit further. So I'm say goodbye to them. Bye now. And for those of you who are on Twitch and in Discord, we will go on and do uh, our field trip for tonight. Yeah, okay, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Okay. Okay, can you hear me all? Yes. Okay, so the plan is to uh, go from West Bree to Surrey Kyla. You can take the horse. Uh, it might be level gated, so if some of you are not uh, able to get there because of your level, um, I'm not sure what to suggest because we probably can't get you there. Uh, and then once you get to Surrey Kyla, you can, if you do not have rep, um, to go to the next stop, which is... Uh, Ziegelgrund. Ziegelgrund, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, then you can use Mithril Coins to do that. Okay. So basically, everybody go to the stables. All right, so we're going to go to this. We're going to... We're going to... We're going to... We're going to hoof it. One of the great things about Forical, riding horses for long periods of time. So we will sneak in as much quick travel as we can do here. All right. Off we go to our friend the stable. Yeah, Druid's Fire. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna Mithril coin it. I think because the long, the slow horse is fairly slow. It would be worth it if it were a mammoth ride. If I could get a slow mammoth ride, I would take it. But since it's only a horse ride, I'm not gonna bother. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, I probably should have mounted my own horse, but we're almost there anyway. Okay. Oh, lagging and Bree. Okay. All right. So yes, we'll start off in Sirikaila, and because then we we can you can quick travel from Sirikaila over to uh, Ziegelgrund, right? If you don't have rep, it'll cost you Mithril coin, right? From yeah. Sirikaila. Okay. As long as quick travel is an option. It is an option, yes. Okay, great. All right. Oops. Oh, shoot. I forgot I have no Mithril coins on this server. Oops. Well, that's fun. Um, could somebody summon me? Totally forgot about that. 
I keep forgetting that Mithril coins are not account-wide, that they're server-based. That keeps throwing me. Um, yeah, thank you, Maven. Appreciate that. Stand by, I'm still fighting. Okay, cool. Okay, I do have two hunters who can port to Sarikyla if you f- need that. Uh, folks, Bloodless and Amsonfloss, uh, both, please send them a tell. So if you are unable to use the horse for some reason. Okay. They can get you to Sarikyla. After that, you still need to get to Ziggleglund. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Maven. Oh, wait. We're in Ziegelgund. Ziegelgund here. We were going to go to uh, Surikawa first. Oh, I thought we were I thought we were telling people to go for... Everybody's been coming to Ziegelgund. Oh, we're, that's, so... That's, that's what we were starting. Oh, I see. Okay, so yeah. we're coming here? Fast horse from Surikawa to Ziegelgund. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here. Okay. Yeah. So we'll just start here. That's fine. Surikawa is lovely, but we can... Uh, Okay, please let Blood know as soon as you can if you do need a port from a hunter. So he can then decide uh, that he's ready to go uh, for himself. Yeah. Meantime, let's look around. Okay, so what do we have here? We are in Ziegel... Now, make sure I'm getting the name right. The name is... Ziegelgund. I keep putting an extra R in where there isn't one. Ziegelgund. Okay. Um, so here we are in Ziegelgund. Let's look at it from the outside. So, okay, we've got some Gauradine over here. All right, good to see people arriving. That is one fast-running hobbit. Wow. Um, okay. So, oh, some beautiful northern lights again tonight. We keep getting... See, I, I usually complain about our field trips always ending up happening at night, but this is kind of cool. All right, so as we saw last time going cross-country uh, through Forakel, um, as far as uh, Pinti Peldot, we, um, uh, we noticed that there were no stone structures of any kind other than the dwarf structures, right? So we did see um, those few dwarvish ruins, right, that we saw in the, the tunnels there. This is, of course, much more than just a dwarvish ruin. This is an entire city up on a hill here. This would seem to be clearly designed for defense, right? So this is a dwarvish fortress, not just a dwarvish, you know, encampment or, or palace or whatever, a trading post. Um, this is clearly a fortress. You can tell from its situation and, like, it's got no windows and, and strong corner towers and things. This certainly seems like a, a a defense thing. Over around the corner over here, we find the entrance to the mines, I believe. Um, and, of course, lots of mammoths. And the mammoth graveyard is over there, right? Lots of, <clears throat> lots of mammoth skeletons over there. Um, but if we look, let's see, let's look up from here. Yep, again, high, inaccessible openings there. This is an extremely defensible position from every side. Very strong, defensible point. Um, which leads to a question. 
Why? What what's the implied story behind this? This is what I love doing, going around. The, I mean, of course, I, I love looking at the places where they're specific, where the Lotro people are specifically interpreting story and adapting story. But it's even cooler, uh, and, well, not even cooler, but it is also cool to um, uh, to look at the places where they are um, investing sort of the whole thing with. Uh, with story, right? Where they're filling in story around the sides. So, okay, so we've made a big dwarvish place. What is the implied story behind this? Even without reading any text and stuff, what can we, what can we see? So we see a dwarf fortification. Why would they build a fortress here? Well, because they thought they were under some kind of threat, right? They clearly are fearing attack by uh, um, by building this structure. Um, also, there is not. In the fortress itself, there doesn't seem to be much of an underground presence here. Um, most of the dwarvish strongholds are underground strongholds, right? Moria is quite a strong place and difficult to attack, and we see defenses like the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, right, to, to prevent it from being invaded from the outside. Um, but that's... Uh, that's um, Again, that's sort of more normal for dwarves to have that kind of underground defense. Um, this is not an underground network. This is just an above-ground fortress up here. Now we have, we do have underground stuff in the mines over here, right? But this is again, when you look at it from the inside, we're not going to go in. Um, but when you look at it from the inside, this is clearly a uh, just this is this this is a mine. So they they lived up there, right up on the hill there, right? They lived up there. Um, in that fairly expansive but above-ground fortress, and they mined over here. This would suggest to me this was not a a, a main place where um, dwarves lived, right? Oh, thank you on the roving threat. Thank you for that. Okay, um, this is uh, this is not a this is not a big place where the, the, there there probably wasn't a major settlement here. It's a large place. But the dwarves aren't going to live above ground for long periods of time, right? Everywhere where we see dwarves living, um, both in the books and in the game world, everywhere where we see dwarves actually living like a, as a long-term home, it's underground, right? Um, whether it be Moria, whether it be the, the, the dwarvish strongholds in the Silmarillion, right? Nogrod and Belagost, whether it be um, Erebor, right? In the Iron Hills, presumably underground, um, uh, uh, the, even the places like the Thorin's Halls in the Blue Mountains, right? Um, uh, you know, Thorin's Gate, as it's called uh, in the game, all of those places are underground places, right? Um, so the fact that this is not an underground place, but an above-ground place, suggests this is more like an outpost, right? Um, presumably here because of this mine. So they were here for, like, professional interest, not out of personal inclination, right? They weren't setting up a place to live permanently. They were here to mine whatever ore they found here at this spot, and they apparently were sufficiently interested in it, right? Or sufficiently fearful of their own position that they built this large fortress connected to it, right? To go with it. Um, So that they could live nearby here in safety for a time, but again, not... Not, not necessarily a permanent. So, at least, so this would be my reading. So where are we? We're in Forakel. The things to remember over here. Not on the map. 
we can't get there from the map. Over, over, over on the right hand, the top right hand side, is the way to Angmar. So you can get over to Angmar from here. Um, if we go out, zoom out one more level, right? You can see more clearly. Um, Forakhel, kind of, you know, Angmar is the kingdom up in the north. Forakhel is sort of further north and further west. But it's uh, it's it's sort of similar. This is why, of course, the Lossoff in the one story about Forakel that we get in the books are worried about the Witch King, right? They know about the Witch King, and he's clearly a part of their sort of local mythos, right? Um, because he's locally a big deal. Um, so being sort of near Angmar, that could be what this is about. That could sort of you know put the date of the forming of Zigogun back to. The time of uh, uh, you know the time of the wars between Angmar and Arnor, right? And so the dwarves felt that they weren't secure. Maybe even who knows? Maybe they suspected both sides. You know, we don't really know for sure. And then, um, and and so they built this defensive fortification because there was a war on, right? And they wanted to be safe. That seems to me a little bit unlikely because. Um, uh, they're really, they're kind of, I mean, Forakhel as a whole is pretty close to Angmar, but they're not all that close to Angmar, right? Um, nor was there ever any real military presence by the Angmarim here that we know of, right? So it's possible that it's Angmar that they're worried about and why they have uh, built themselves this impressive fortress, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% convinced that that's necessarily the answer. Um... Also, I think that there's another answer, potentially, to hand. So, uh, let's mount up for a second here. Let's go around... Let's go around t'other side of the fortress. So, we're down here around to the south, by the entrance to the mine, and where the mammoths live, right? This is a mammoth base. We got the... the, uh, the uh, the elephant's graveyard right over there. We do have some Gauradine floating around here, but we don't seem to be near a major settlement of them. Again, if you explore around here, you find that most of their major settlements are are in this central region, not too far from uh, uh, Pintipeldot, where we ended last time. Um, so it's not a, like a huge Gauradine area. So let's kind of keep exploring around and say again we got some some, some we got some bears, we got some garadine, we got a few little garadine encampments, but not really sort of their main territory. But if we keep going this way, we come on something quite different. Aha. Worms. Worms. Winter worms. Dragons. This whole area, right? This whole green area on the map. Green because it's got the got these hot springs, right? So we got these hot springs coming out with these big mineral deposits, and that's why we have liquid water here instead of uh, instead of ice, right? But uh, this whole area is crawling with dragon kind, and there are some big ones in here. And it makes me wonder, is that 
what the dwarves were afraid of, right? Angmar is far away, but there are dragons that live right nearby. And as we know, dragons and dwarves have a bit of a history, right? So if, uh, if you're dwarves and you're building this mine, right, and you're saying, like, okay, we need to make a settlement up there near the mine so that we can mine this spot, um, but there's a bunch of dragons that live close by, maybe we should take precautions, right? So that makes a good bit of sense to me. That would be my, that would be my favorite theory about why Ziegelgund is, is built as it is, why it's this big, huge defensive fortification. Maybe we're being safe, better, more safe than sorry, you know, about the, uh, about the Gowradine. Maybe we're being more safe than sorry, uh, you know, about the, uh, the, the Angmarim, right? You never know when the Witch King is going to come over here. Um, but, um, but I do think the, uh, the dragons are the nearest and most sort of conspicuous from a dwarvish standpoint danger, I think. Uh, that we get here. So now these are just little worms, right? They're they're not uh, not super intelligent. They, you know, they, they, none of these guys are Smaug, right? But um, I can I'm sort of better safe than sorry. Deathman is suggesting they were uh, they were uh, mining sulfur to make steel. Hey, you know, quite possible. Um, uh, Tony asks if these are cold drakes. Uh, they're winter worms. There are cold drakes. Uh, in Forakel up here. Um, so, uh, yeah, I suspect uh, the, this seems to be the um, that kind of, uh, in that kind of area. Um, but, uh, okay, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, now, Brandon, I agree, Ziegelgun doesn't look like a temporary structure. Um, but, of course, I mean, what do you expect the, the dwarves to make? Again, they're going to make something strong to defend their mine. Um, and I think they would be serious about the mine long term. There would probably be dwarves living here for a long time. Because, like, until they had mined out the mine, they're going to stick around, right? Um, but, um, uh, but there's... Um, The distinction I'm trying to make is between them sort of thinking about this as a home, right? Um, they would make a strong fortress to defend their wealth, right? To defend their mine. Um, that doesn't mean that they would sort of establish this as a uh, as a as a sort of kingdom. Um, now, uh, Valori, there's a ghost infest. Is there a ghost infestation in the mine? I'm forgetting this. I remembered that there's. Um, here we can we can we can leave this little place so that the worms stop spawning. I know this. The worms are very persistent uh, in this area. Um. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, Tora Marthen. This is not a place where a dwarf would want to raise a family, right? The the dwarves. I don't think the dwarves of Ziegelgun would consider themselves from Ziegelgun. Like, this isn't going to be their ancestral place, you know? Um, oh, oh, up north there's a shipwreck. Oh, the, you know, the, the, the ghosts issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's, that's, that's really far away. That's really far away. Um, not to mention, it is not at all obvious to me that the ghosts 
predate the castle, right? The Dwarvish castle. Okay. Um. Okay, right. No, yeah, it's just just the d- evil dwarves, the dower hands, and the hill beasts. Yeah, that's what I thought, Deathman. Um, inside the inside the um, inside the mine. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Amethorn. That the practical value of building their their stronghold and settlement here next to the warmest place in Forakel, that does seem like a, a really good idea, a really practical sort of dwarvish plan, right? Um, to um, because they nuts not just sulfur, right? But I mean, just thinking about the you know the heat and the you know there are all kinds of things you can imagine them using the uh, the the hot springs for. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, so where I want to go next, of course, is I want to go up to see the shipwreck because the shipwreck is awesome. Uh, I want to go up the coast here, up into Talvi Muri, to Kuru Lairi, up here. Um, you know, at this point, well, maybe we should get together on a raid because we've got some fairly low levels here. Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering if we have I'm wondering if we have time cuz it's it's getting late. I guess we could ride up there and then we could come back to it next time. So yeah, that's a good idea. Let's 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 raid up. Somebody want to uh somebody want to start send, send me a tell if you need uh invite to the raid. This is Lily Rose. Okay. Great. Yeah, if you could uh if you could invite me, that'd be great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was just looking down at the at the text there. I see that uh, Pineleaf just defeated the Silver Hare. Thanks, Pineleaf, for clearing out the rabbits. I was worried about those. Uh, so yeah, that's that's good. We don't have to. Nobody has to worry about rabbits with uh, um, nasty, big, pointy teeth lunging after you here. Which could totally happen. I mean, you know, it had a vicious streak a mile wide, that one. Uh, so we really owe a lot to Pine Leaf there to taking care of that for us. <laughs> Look at the bones! Now... While we're raiding up, I'm going to take a peek inside. Because I never even went inside. I was just looking around the outside. So let's take a quick peek inside. While we're finishing raiding up. Oh, we got a frost grim by the front door. That's fun. Just going to look around. Just a little peek. Okay, especially if you're one of the littles, please make sure that I got you in raid. If not, send me another tell because I think I got everybody but I'm not sure. Okay. Great. Yes. Okay. The wooden scaffolding is interesting. I wonder why that's there. Love to see people wearing their cold weather gear. Narnian's a little underdressed, but he's all right. Let's see. What is this, do you think? I mean, look at this. Steps to what? 
Okay, is there anybody else I am missing? Sorry, just doing logistics. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at architecture here. Um, here's that lookout post that we were seeing from the bottom. And you can't get inside much of it. You can't go the whole length of it. So like if you come up here, you can only go as far as this, right? You can't go up into that whole other area. See, the door is closed here, up into the more expansive parts. So this is all pretty bare bones out on the, out on the, I was about to say the balcony, out on the battlements, right? Um, but yeah, Katriana, I agree, this, sorry, no, not this, down here. This looks like it's been bricked up. Do you think someone was bricked up in the wall here? That would be romantic. Not to the person who got bricked in. Well, it's more tragic, more tragically romantic for them. Um, but it's uh, 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 an altar, maybe. Kind of. Not much space to put stuff there. Uh, display of what? Like a display shelf? Like a grocery store end cap except dwarvish? I don't really know the purpose of that. Very interesting. But anyway, okay. So th- what we see, in t- we don't get much inside. Presumably there is an inside. But again, again, the fact notice... It's very conspicuous about Ziegelgund is that everything is outside, right? I mean, everything. You can't go. There is no going indoors here. Uh, not only is there not any going underground, there's no going indoors, right? So um, uh, just kind of, you know, cementing that, that concept of, you know, this is not a, a sort of a normal dwarvish home here. Okay. All right. So let's head up. North. I'm going to kind of wait for people to kind of gather around a little bit. I know there's a delay between what I say and um, and uh, when people can hear me say it uh, and Discord folks can hear me sooner. But all right, so let's um, let's head north. Follow the sun. That's right. Oh, it looks like. Dawn is creeping into the sky, and our northern lights are going to be expelled. So, okay. Those of you on war steeds might uh, take care of any ferocious-looking little bunnies that are in the path again, just to make sure that nobody gets dismembered as we go through. Seeing what the first thing we notice up here, first thing I notice up here, is how barren it is. The road just kind of stopped, right? There was what looked like a road, sort of. Now there's not even really a road. We're just on this, like, rolling tundra here. Um, there is very little indication of any kind of dwellings, right? We can see on the horizon there's another structure up there. So we're headed towards something in the vague distance there, but we can't even really tell what it is yet. 
Um, there are still the mobs here are still. We've got Garadine, bears, and the occasional Grim still. So we do have the sort of nomadic wolfmen. Not exactly nomadic, but roaming, right? Now we've got some worms. Some more some more cold worms here. So yeah, Amethorn, this is true wilderness, which is not all that common, uh, actually. Because even places... Even places where there is no... Not really much current settlement, right? Like um, Eregion or um, Enidwife, right? Um, those places still remember civilization. You know, here... We don't even have the road. I mean, there's still a, the Greenway is still a paved road, right? It's still a paved road that um, goes all the way through. And we, you know, and as as they depict, and as we'll see when we get there, there are bridges and th- oh, God, there's a rabbit. Watch out for that. Uh, pine leaf better take care of that one. Uh, <laughs> sorry, pine leaf. I'm kind of sorry for giving you a hard time, but I'm also kind of not sorry for giving you a hard time because it's fun. Um, so if we, it's uh, we can just see. It's still a little too dark. Let's head up towards the. Hey, are you attacking me? That's exceptionally rude. Um, I want to head up to it. To, it's uh, it's just what time is it? Is it pre-dawn or something? No, it's evening. Okay, all right. It's evening. It's just getting dark. So okay, I want to head up towards the ruins that we see on the horizon there, and then we'll call it from there, and then we'll go down and explore the bay and the sights to be seen down by the bay. Um, next time. So here's another little encampment. Apparently in, like, the middle of nowhere. Again, there's no roads leading up to it. It's just this little encampment in the middle of nowhere with some mammoths, right? And uh, a stable master who won't let me ride a mammoth, which I try to forgive the stable master for, but I kind of have a hard time forgiving the stable master for that because I really want to ride a mammoth, but that's okay. Um, So we just got a few igloos. That's it, right? Just igloos and windbreaks. Yep. So we don't even get any of those like barrel-shaped, round buildings like we got uh, down in Capacota, so... Okay. Looks like another fortress. I'm thinking dwarf fortress again. We have yet to see any stone structures that are not obviously of dwarvish construction. And so that's what I'm assuming we're finding here, too. Just a reminder, most of us who are mounted can't kill from uh, being mounted, so... Please clear the uh, the riff raff out of the area. Yeah, yeah. If you're on a if you're on a war steed, go at it. Okay. Yep. Clearly dwarvish construction, very much like Zigogund, right? We see exactly the same pattern of stonework, and once again a defensive fortification. 
um, up at, I mean, we've been galloping up this really, really steep slope. I mean, look how high up we are. It's too dark to see all the way down into the valley, but um, it's, uh, it would be very hard for somebody to march on this and try to take it by storm. Um, And the bad guys in here who are appropriately being cleared out are whites, are they not? They are. They are whites, yes. We are fighting the undead inside this castle. Again, look at this wall. You just look at that. We've got some uh, little constructions, which are just like the big, huge constructions that we were noticing, like by the junction of the roads down in... uh, uh, by uh, uh, Pintipel Dot. Um, and they are, well, I was about to say, dwarfed. Uh, by the We're looking way down on them from this wall. Um, oh, man, look at this concentric construction. Look at that. Even if you did fight your way up that slope and get inside, all you'd get access to is this other courtyard where you could be pushed off the cliff and then you've got to fight your way all the way up to there, right? Where they could then rally up there and then inside the keep, right? you got to come up here and then, right? And then you've still not gotten inside. Then this would presumably be the gate, though it doesn't look like a gate now. But you'd think there would be a gate here. But this appears to be bricked up, too. Now what would this be about? Ziegelgun makes sense because there's the mine, right? So the combination of mine plus hot springs, you'd think this would attract, be attractive to the dwarves, right? Why up here above Kurulairi? Why Kibilzahar? Which is... Which name, of course, obviously confirms our uh, initial assessment of dwarvish construction. Why was Kibilzahar built? Can we guess? Again, clearly a defensive emplacement, clearly a fortress by its design. Yeah, Aragorn, an outpost of some sort. Um, There is a cave. There is a cave there. Yes. I don't know why you would uh, build a whole fortress, though. I mean... You might build it, like, around the opening of the cave if you wanted to keep folks out of the cave. You know, if there was something in the cave that you wanted. Um, but they don't have that. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? There's no... It is, of course, possible, um, Deathman, that there could be a minor tunnel joining this to Zigogun, that dwarves could travel underground between here and Zigogun. That's possible. A um, uh, couple people are wondering if they might have found Mithril here. Is there a mine? Possibly there's a mine back in the mountains here. We don't have any evidence that there is, but we don't know that there isn't either. The entrance to this one isn't outside like it is in Zigogun, so it's possible. Uh, but, but that doesn't prove that it doesn't happen, right? So it, it still could be... Uh, there still could be mining activity here. Um, hmm. Hmm. Stormcastle Jackson is wondering if uh, maybe it's from the first age 
and therefore from before the sinking, like from before the sinking of Beleriand. I have a hard time believing that. I mean, it's possible, but you'd think this place would be in a bit more disrepair uh, if it survived the sinking of Beleriand, especially up near the coast where we are here, right? I mean, um, this would have been... So we're basically... Yeah, we're up here, right at the very northern edge. This whole area would have been pretty far inland. Could these be things that would have been um, outposts that could have been uh, southern out? Because, of course, these are the Blue Mountains, right, that we're in. And we know that the Blue Mountains was where Nogrod and Belagost were located, right? I still have a hard time believing that this fortress survived from the First Age intact. I mean, it's at the very end of a mountain range which mostly sank beneath the ocean, so um, it's, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to see that. Um, they don't ship, right? See, Arrowhead trade routes was what I was thinking of, too. Um, it would make some sense if they were mining down here at Zigogund, and then the fortress up here in the north was designed to protect the trade routes where they were shipping the stuff that they took from the mine at Zigogund. Um, but... Yeah, Erokeb elves from Linden might sail up, so possibly in the old days, you know, like in the Second Age, say, maybe they had trade. Um... Maybe they had trade with the elves, right? Um, that's possible. The elves of Linden certainly would have been seafaring. I mean, Kirtan the Shipwright is there, right? So, you know, making of ships wouldn't be a problem. Lily Rose, where are you seeing the... the brazier, the... Where's the fire? Do we have a prominent fireplace? Fire spot? That might be beaconish. Is that what you're thinking? Do we have anything beaconish? I mean, this whole place could be beaconish. I mean, the way that it overlooks here. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we do have a. Oh, up there. Right. Right. Is that. I'm staring at this on there. Yeah, that looks more like a, a sort of a torchish kind of thing, but it does present the idea, right? Could that have been one of the functions... <laughs> everyone's lighting campfires. Uh, could that have been one of the functions of this platform here, right? Because um, certainly if you built a large fire on here, it would be visible from the bay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you could, you could certainly do that. Um, it would make sense. See, I was, um, let's, hang on, let's back out again. Yeah, so Eridlind, and these are the Blue Mountains again as they come down, were quite a ways away from Thorn's Gate. Um, 
But see, Stormcastle, again, like, on the one hand, I can't get away from the fact that I just find it extremely unlikely that this fortress could have survived from the First Age. But the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of it. Ooh, white. Let me see him. Just a basic, just like one of the barfing whites from the Barrow Downs, right? Okay. Um, I just wanted to see if he was wearing anything interesting that might identify him. But anyhow, um, uh, as we've seen, no external excuse for the dead to be walking up here. But, you know, like, it happens sometimes. You know, you get these infestations. Um, anyhow, so anyway, so Stormcastle, like I said, I'm re- I'm, I, it doesn't seem to me to make sense that this castle would survive intact without... Because there, there were earthquakes and stuff, right? I mean, it would have been... It'd be, it'd, be in, it'd be in rough shape. But, but I like the idea. Because we are in the Blue Mountains, and we know that it was in the Blue Mountains, though further north from here, that um, the original dwarf, you know, the primary dwarvish settlements of the dwarves who took part in the events of the First Age in the Silmarillion, that's where they lived. So the idea of um, Kibil Zahar and even Zigogun, conceivably, being actually, instead of the extreme northern outposts of the dwarves of Middle-earth, remnants of the extreme southern outposts of the dwarves of Nograd and Belagost, that would be really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and Tillian, as far as how long structures like this could survive the weathering of ice... I'm not too worried about that. I mean, it looks weathered, right? It's not cracked and broken up, but, um, you know, it's clearly not in, like, mint condition. It just doesn't look like it's been through an earthquake either, is my, was my, is my chief point about that. Okay. All right, well, next time we'll hope for daylight, and we'll go down, but daylight or no, um, we'll, we'll, I don't know if we can meet up in uh, um, Kurulairi, but... Um, we'll come back up here to Forakel one more time at least because um, of course we have to go down to the bay and explore what's down in the bay because that's pretty fun um, so let's uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll end here um, thanks you guys we're, yeah because we're, we're running late now anyway thanks everybody for joining me always fun uh, to be back with you guys on Gladden. Great crowd here today for our field trip. Thanks for all of your help. Thanks for everybody uh, being with me uh, through the class today, both sections of the class. Don't forget our fall fundraisers going on. Um, go to signumuniversity.org slash slash donate and uh, make a donation, please, if you are enjoying the class and would like to see stuff like this continue and expand. Uh, And also, don't forget, if you do make a donation, uh, send an email to donate at signumu.org and uh, mention Exploring the Word of the Rings uh, in the, uh, uh, in the, in the, I almost said the quest chat, uh, in the subject line, and uh, and you'll be entered into our prize drawing for uh, uh, for this event. So thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Bye, everybody.